Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, we will talk about a Wall Street Journal poll concerning the 2024 presidential race. We will also dive deep into special counsel David Weiss's announced possible grand jury indictment against Hunter Biden. Joe Kennedy coaches one game at Bremerton High School and quits. We will discuss the 22-year sentence handed down against Enrique, Enrique Torrio for his role in the Capitol riot. This is Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and you know what time it is. Time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. Welcome into a Thursday edition of Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. If you're watching live, thanks for joining us. And if you're planning on downloading the podcast later on, or maybe you're listening to the podcast now, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Please leave us a good review when you finish listening. Uh, if you enjoy the program, it's likely others will too. And if you're watching live, we really appreciate having you along here. Um, it's, it's such a, a different environment now, I'm telling you. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I'm not going to belabor this, but I mean, just you know, doing the radio show the way that I did for 22 years and now doing this um, by myself, it's just it's such, such a different way to operate. I mean, I'm thankful that I have the opportunity and uh, I'm glad that the show can continue uh, I'm excited about some of the uh, the direction that I believe the show is going to take um, in the coming months. Uh, the show is growing. Uh, that's something that's encouraging. We're seeing more people downloading the podcast. And, I, I, and if you're leaving us a good review, thank you for doing that, because that means other people are reading your review and thinking, okay, this must be pretty cool. And then they're downloading the podcast and becoming a listener. And those numbers continue to grow. We, we've got a ways to go. Um, I, I would really like to grow this show. Um, I, I have my own personal goals for the number of listeners and the number of downloads that we get. Now, I'm a realist. I'm not a national figure. Um, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not Ben Shapiro. I'm not Matt Walsh. Um, I'm, I'm not uh, any of the Joe Rogan. And I, and, and I, don't, I don't pretend to be. I just, I'm, I'm a guy who has spent most of my life in ministry um, pastoral ministry, some some portion of my life in music ministry, uh, some portion in higher education as an administrator, working with college students, um, and I've tried to be a lifelong learner, somebody who has um, do, does a lot of reading. Right now, I'm in the Colson's Fellows program, Colson Fellows program, trying to just not not necessarily for the title to become a Colson's Fellow, although. That would mean a lot to me because of my respect for Chuck Colson. Um, I, I'm, I'm finding it very helpful, the amount of information that I'm having to read and be exposed to because um, in, uh, in the program. So a lifelong learner. I would encourage everybody to be one of those. So I'm, I'm, I'm very realistic um, about the podcast and about the live show. Um, if, uh, what I, I'm seriously trying to do here is to talk about topics and be sure that the information is accurate um, I'm, and, and to also to make sure that it's true and to make sure that I'm presenting it in a way that would honor God and that we talk about some of the biblical aspects of the things that are circulating in the news. And what I'm going to start off with today is uh, we heard yesterday that David Weiss is going to be asking a grand jury to indict Hunter Biden on a federal gun charge. And justice, it, there's a lot about today's program that's going to deal with, with the topic of justice. And of course, and God has a very, very strong opinion about justice, that justice has to be something that is equally applied, that justice, as the American justice system says, Justice is supposed to be blind. We're not supposed to treat rich people with more deference than normally they would get under the justice system because of their wealth. We're not supposed to treat poor people 
with less deference under the justice system because of their poverty. Um, we're, and, and by the way, we're not supposed to elevate the poor or allow the poor, those who are in poverty or those who uh, have had difficult circumstances, we're not supposed to elevate those in the question of justice above the question of right or wrong and the question of the truth any more than we're supposed to lower that standard for the rich or the famous. So in God, in the, in the Word of God, speaks a lot, especially through the prophets, about justice, justice for the weak, the hurting in our, in, in our midst. Um, and we, right now as a country, have lost a lot of confidence in our justice system. And the justice system in America is one of the pillars that, that keep us going. I mean, it's, it's, what, it's what makes an average American get up every day and think, okay, I live in a free country. I live in a country that I can have confidence that I'm not going to be unjustly accused of a crime that if I am accused of a crime and I'm innocent, I'm confident that the evidence will bear out my innocence and I will be exonerated and I won't go to jail as an innocent person. And that idea is largely being lost in America today. And that, along with other institutions that we're losing confidence in, uh, that doesn't make for a healthy country. And it really is a harbinger of a lot of problems that we're going to face down the road if we can't find a way to resolve the amount of distrust and the amount of, of acrimony that we feel for institutions right now in this country, because a lot of our institutions culturally are, are, is that which holds us together, um, along with our morality, our, our shared morality, which is becoming harder and harder to determine. I mean, we, we, so many people have chosen a path of morality that is um, without any objective standard. And when, you don't, when, when morality becomes completely subjective, that is, it's based on personal opinion, you don't really have morality anymore. You can't have a uh, collective morality that we all live by when everybody's living by their own personal morality and there's no objective standard to determine the difference between right and wrong. And so that, that brings us to a very difficult place in our country, and it leads to the kind of stories that we're seeing today. Um, so in, in light of all that, yesterday the DOJ announced that it plans to charge Hunter Biden for the illegal possession of a firearm by the end of the month. Now, you remember there's actually two charges in this charge, and we'll, we'll flesh that out here in a second. But you remember, of course, Hunter Biden's sweetheart deal that fell apart in, in front of Judge Mary Ellen Noriega. Uh, Special Counsel David Weiss filed an update yesterday to the court that revealed he plans to have a grand jury vote on the indictment against Hunter by the end of September. Weiss says he plans to ask for two charges, one for using a banned substance, that would be cocaine, because he was using, that's in connection with the gun charge, because he lied on a federal form saying that he wasn't a drug abuser while he was using cocaine. So he's also being charged for using a banned substance, and one for lying on the, on the federal firearm application. Now, the firearm charge carries a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison, and the plea deal, if it had held, would have allowed Hunter to walk out of the courtroom with nothing more than probation. And that's really what had everybody outraged. And here we go back to this idea of equal justice under the law, the idea that we, in, in America, we can have the, with some confidence, it is what kind of helps hold the culture together, that if we go into court, we're going to be treated the same as if Hunter Biden goes into court. And a lot of Americans are thinking, hmm, if I had lied on my federal application to purchase a firearm, if I'd been under the influence of drugs or taking drugs and I lied about that, I would land in jail. And here's this guy, because his last name is Biden, he's getting some kind of sweetheart deal where he gets probation on tax charges and a federal weapons charge. And so here's the, this is what I'm talking about, the undermining of the confidence and the belief in the American justice system. Um, Hunter's attorneys in all of this believe that their client was going to receive, of course, a full blanket immunity 
against future charges as part of the sweetheart deal. And that really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But it turns out that the that Hunter's lawyers and the prosecution weren't on the same page. And we've talked a lot about that. But I'm convinced that one of the reasons David Weiss uh, did not bring uh, any more charges and was not willing to offer blanket immunity is because, I, and, and this is the, the skeptic in me, uh, but I believe part of it is linked to the fact that having the ability to bring additional charges against Hunter Biden will stymie the work of the congressional committees. They're investigating the connection between Hunter Biden and Devin Archer and others, and of course, President Biden with Burisma um, and money coming from the Chinese that was flowing into the Biden family while President Bi uh, the current President Biden was vice president at the time. So, um, you know, it, it's all of this is leading us, quite frankly, into a bad place. And Americans are not confident that anybody is going to be brought to justice anymore. We have hearings. Uh, we have evidence. And it, it seems that we have a, a, a bunch of evidence. We're going to go through some of it here in a minute against Hunter Biden. And yet the statute of limitations is, is running out on any additional charges. And this just seems to be a game that the Justice Department is playing with Hunter Biden waiting for the for the um, statute of limitations to expire on any major charges that could involve President Biden. Uh, because Dave Weiss has been investigating this before he was named special counsel, which was, we talked about that as a joke. I mean, first of all, he's a federal prosecutor, um, and he's not supposed to be a, a special prosecutor for the Justice Department from inside the Justice Department. They're supposed to go outside. Um, and so there's that, plus the fact that Weiss has been investigating Hunter Biden since 2017. And so it's 2023. Um, and, and so now the statute of limitations on it is, I think, five years is what Andrew McCarthy said. And so you, we're beyond the statute of limitations on a lot of the charges that could be brought against Hunter Biden. And that's going to end up being a shield. Uh, before we get into the, the depth of that, let me just add this. Several of Hunter Biden's attorneys have stepped away from his defense team because they're anticipating that they're going to have to testify in court concerning the nature of the plea deal. Uh, that's it, It's beginning to look like that that's the, the deal itself and how it was struck is going to end up being um, litigated uh, because there are too many questions that have not been answered about how that plea deal came around. Hunter's remaining legal team is preparing a lawsuit against the DOJ for negotiating in bad faith, and they're asking that part of the plea deal be enforced, which I, I, I really don't, I don't think that's going to go anywhere, but I'm not going to say for sure because I, I think it's certainly possible that it could. All right, Andrew, Mc, Andrew McCarthy's got a long piece at National Review today, and I try to read as much as, as I can of him simply because he brings so many um, things to the table from a legal perspective when it comes to the Bidens. And that he's, he really goes back and talks about the, the etymology, the, the evolution of this case. He, he talks about how this case has been around, why it's been around for so long, and, and how it begins to, to talk about the weight of evidence that there is against Hunter Biden that may never be brought into a courtroom because of the statute of limitations. But let me just start with a little bit of this. Um, According to McCarthy at, at National Review, Weiss has ensured that the corruption evidence the House committee has honed in on, the most significant evidence because it stems from Biden's time as vice president, cannot result in criminal charges. That includes tax crimes. They have a six-year statute of limitations, five-year on some of the other charges, six-year on the tax charges, uh, meaning that Weiss has now obliterated any possible tax case based on conduct prior to September 6, 2017, the tax years from 2014 through 2016 when Hunter took his post at the Burisma board and Joe leveraged his influence as vice president to pressure the new government in Kiev to fire the prosecutor who was investigating Burisma. Those are also, by the way, the years when Burisma founder 
and CEO Nikolai Zolchevsky bribed Vice President Biden, according to what Zolchevsky told an FBI informant, who said he have that? Who is said to have a track record of providing reliable information? Based on the FBI's report of the informant account, Zolchevsky told the informant that he had installed Hunter on the board and paid him lavishly in order to buy Vice President Biden's political protection. At the time, Zolchevsky, who has been um, had been a minister in the just ousted Ukrainian government, was under investigation by the new government of President Petro Poroshenko which was backed by the Obama administration. The British government, too, had Zolchevsky on its radar. Indeed, it had seized $23 million of his assets just weeks before Hunter joined the board. In addition, Zolchevsky told the informant that he had bribed Joe and Hunter Biden with a combined $10 million that was transferred in a complex web of transactions that Zolchevsky said would take investigators to a decade to unwind. Now, this is what... Many believe that the House Investigative Committee was able to uncover. Uh, Chairman Comer, what you remember, talked about the fact that there were twenty different bank or twenty different shell companies that they discovered, and that the money was flowing from Ukraine into these shell companies and then being dispersed to various Biden family members, and that they believe that they've got sufficient evidence to demonstrate all this. Uh, while the informant, I'm back to Andrew McCarthy's story here, while the informant has not been identified, any competent investigator would observe that there's some significant cooperation of the informant's account. It is known that despite Hunter Biden's lack of any marketable experience in the energy sector, Zolchevsky paid the American vice president's son $1 million a year beginning in 2014 to sit on the board. Now, his, that, that's a $1 million a year to sit on a board for what? Hunter Biden didn't have any information about the gas industry. Um, Hunter Biden was on the board as a conduit to his his father, who was vice president of the United States, and having access access to him was what be, was being paid for. At least that's the allegation. Um, a salary that was significantly slashed, by the way, once Biden was no longer in in office. So when President Biden left office, then Hunter Biden's salary got significantly reduced. Moreover, the House committee has established that the Bidens use various banking channels, a complex web of 20 limited liability companies, which we just talked about, where that was funneling money to Biden family members, including Joe Biden's grandchildren and other relatives who clearly had nothing to do with what passes for the family's foreign commerce. So far, the committee has identified more than $20 million in foreign payments capitalizing on the thorough work of Republican Senators Chuck Grassley of Iowa and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. So a lot of this information that the House is working on has come out of the Senate and their investigation. To reiterate, to reiterate, McCarthy says, Weiss has been the lead prosecutor on the Biden investigation since 2018, although the information outlined above has only recently broken into the public consciousness. It is not new to the government. Now, this is a critical point. In other words, when, when we're hearing all this information, we're thinking, wow, this is new information. This is, this is the House investigators uncovering information that was yet not known by the government. That would not be the case. The fact is that, it, that the federal uh, prosecutor obviously has better investigative tools at his disposal to compel the production of documents than does the congressional committee, particularly documents in the possession of the executive branch. So the government, David Weiss and the DOJ, has known about all this since back in 2017 and actually prior to that. So the, the, the fact that this is, oh, but we've got brand new information here. Yeah, it's brand new information coming to the American people because we didn't know, but the government knew, government officials, the Justice Department knew that this was going on. According to the letter that Oversight Chairman James Comer sent to the National Archives and Records Administration on Wednesday, which is custodian of the Obama administration White House records, it maintains a file titled Records on Hunter Biden, James Biden, uh, the current president's brother, and their foreign business dealings. Now, 
we still have President Biden going out, and if he's ever asked about this, if he answers the question in a way that we can understand what he says, he, he basically says, look, I had nothing to do with Hunter Biden. I didn't have anything to do with my son's business dealings. And yet you've got a file on record at the National Archives called Records on Hunter Biden, James Biden, and their foreign business dealings. You are, are you are you trying to tell me that the National Archives kept that record because there was no connection to the, the White House or no con- connection to Vice President Biden? They have Hunter Biden and James Biden have nothing to do with the White House, except Hunter Biden and James Biden happen to be related to Joe Biden, which is why this communication would have ended up in the National Archives. The email correspondence highlighted by Comer is dated December 4th, 2015, when President uh, when Vice President Biden was the Obama administration point man on Ukraine policy about a year and a half after Hunter Biden joined the Burisma board. The first email at 10.45 a.m., all times are Eastern, in the form of, of the aforementioned Eric Schwerwin, who is Hunter's longtime fellow lobbyist and business partner, who was a close advisor of Joe Biden and intimately involved in managing the Biden's family finances. So here, Schwerwin is the uh, is the the key here, um, I, because he's connected to Hunter. He was a business partner of Hunter, but he's also connected to President Biden because he he was a close advisor for the vice president, and he also was involved in managing the Biden's family finances. So here's the guy. This is the guy who knows where all this money came from, where it was going. Um, There's no way that he wouldn't know. The email prescribes talking points that Schwerin suggested the Obama administration should use to respond to media questions about Hunter's role on the Burisma board. Schwerin sent the talking points to Kate Bedenfield, Vice President Biden's communications director, a few hours later, that same day, at 2.30 p.m., Bedingfield responded informing Schwerin that the VP signed off on this. So let's put a little bit of context on this. This is what... This is all coming from Andrew McCarthy. If you put context on it. On the same day, December 4th, Hunter was in Dubai with his close friend and fellow Burisma board member, Devin Archer, to attend the Ukrainian company's board meeting. Interestingly, shortly before they joined Burisma's board, Archer and Hunter had met with Vice President Biden at the White House on April 16, 2014. Then five days later, after that meeting where they met together, on April 21st, the Vice President was in Kiev for various meetings. And wouldn't you know it, the very next day, it was announced that Archer had been named to Burisma's board of directors. It's five days after the meeting that Archer and Hunter had with Hunter's dad, who was vice president at the time, with Hunter's formal installment on the board announced a few weeks later on May 12th. Archer, by the way, was later convicted in a federal fraud case in which Hunter Biden was implicated but not charged. He worked with Hunter and Schwerwin at Rosemont Seneca Partners and has described their business as peddling the Biden brand, a euphemism for access to Joe Biden and his and his clout. Look, no matter what we 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 think politically, okay, let's let's take Democrats and Republicans and set them aside for a minute. What we're dealing with here is substantial evidence. I'm not going to say anybody's guilty until they're found guilty in a court of law because I'm going to try as long as I can as an American citizen, as somebody who cares about and loves this country deeply, I'm going to try to stay within the bounds of what the Constitution does to protect us from accusations. But the evidence is clear. There's enough evidence for all of this to be sitting in court somewhere. I mean, the, the, the mainstream media... The, the legacy press is totally ignoring these stories. And I believe that they're doing it because they can see, anybody can see as this evidence mounts up and the number of people who are involved give testimony that there was a direct connection between Vice President Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, and Devin Archer, and all that was taking place with the Burisma board and when uh, Vice President Biden ended up going to Ukraine and, and demanding that, um, that, that the prosecutor be fired 
then you know where why else i mean what what else was the motivating factor according to uh, to now president biden he went to having fired because he was corrupt but according to a lot of information that we've obtained he went to have the prosecutor fired as a response to the Burisma, to putting Hunter Biden on the Burisma board and the amount of money, $10 million, that was paid to make sure that Shokin, the prosecutor, got the boot because it was threatening, at that time, he was threatening Burisma. Now, there are those who say that there was no investigation of Burisma, but the facts seem to contradict that. So in the run-up to the board meeting, um, as I'm back to McCarthy's story here, and the run-up to the board meetings I've previously recounted, Zolchevsky's confidant, Burisma CFO, Vadim Por, uh, Porzarsky. Okay, I have to work on these Russians' names. I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of them, or I, I'm, I'm just, I got to work on them. Um, Vadim Porzarsky had emailed Hunter, Archer, and Sherwin on November 2nd. So now, I know this is... As we lay this out, your eyes kind of glaze over, right? You just kind of sit back and go, okay, wait a minute. Who was what? Who was who? So so this is back. who got the, the email? Hunter Biden, uh, Devin Archer, and Sherwin, who is the business partner for Hunter Biden, also advisor to Vice President Joe Biden at the time and a manager of the Biden's family business affairs. So that's who's getting the in, the email from Porsharsky on November 2nd. And Porsharsky was bemoaning the lack of concrete, tangible results that we set out to achieve. What concrete, tangible results? I mean, what, what are we talking about here? When Hunter and Archer joined Burisma. In other words, the, this is a confirmation of why Hunter and Archer were put on the Burisma board. Porcharsky Karp, that business planning documents Hunter and Archer had supplied, failed to, quote, offer any names of top U.S. officials here in Ukraine, for instance, the U.S. ambassador, or Ukrainian officials, the president of Ukraine, chief of staff, prosecutor general, as key targets for improving Nikolay Zelchowski's case and his situation in Ukraine. To ensure that everyone was on the same page regarding our final goals, Porcharsky demanded concrete deliverables. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't get much clearer than that. Concrete deliver, deliverables, what are those? Results that the people who were paying uh, Hunter Biden and Devin Archer, they were expected to deliver concrete um, actions by the United States, and particularly by the vice president, to intervene in what was going on in Ukraine. Um, so, plainly, Zhukovsky's troubles were the top agenda at the board meeting on December 4th, the same day that Sherwin emailed Vice President Biden's communications director. You remember, we talked about that email earlier. It was, it was talking points that he sent to Bedingfield, who was the communications director for Vice President Biden, and those talking points were approved by the vice president. Whatever Hunter and Archer said in that regard at the board meeting did not satisfy Zolchevsky and Porsharsky. While the two Americans were sitting at a bar at the Four Seasons restaurant in Dubai, they got a call from Porsharsky, who said that Zolchevsky had an urgent need to speak with Hunter. The two Ukrainians made the short trip to the Four Seasons, where they joined their American colleagues at the bar as they discussed Zolchevsky's uh, straits, his problems, Porzarsky put Hunter on the spot asking, can you ring your dad? Now, these four guys are the two Ukrainians and Devin Archer and Hunter Biden. Are you, they're sitting in a bar the Four Seasons in Dubai. Hunter agrees to call his dad, and he placed the call. When the vice president of the United States, the Biden brand himself, came to the phone, Hunter put the call on speaker and explained that he and Archer were sitting together with Nikolay and Vadim. Now, why so familiar? Well, it's because, obviously, the vice president was familiar with who he was talking about. Um, so, the, again, all of this evidence, and I want to get back to the Justice Department and the idea of justice in the, in the United States, because, again, um, I, I, my main concern here is 
it's yes, I want people who break the law to be held accountable. Um, I want that to be true, whether it's people in my tribe or in the tribe that I don't belong to. And I'm trying my best to get out of this idea of tribalism, but that's the environment that we're in in the country right now. We're, we're, either, we're either on one side or the other. We're very divided. But in the interest of justice, when, when people that I like, people that I have respect for, if they break the law, then the Justice Department needs to treat them the same way that they treat the people that I disagree with politically. Because that's one of our most cherished protections in America is the idea that everybody's going to get a, a fair trial. And all of this started to be called into question, I mean, a long time ago, but particularly, I believe, under the Obama administration when the, you had the IRS scandal. I mean, the, the IRS agency, there's, there's no question about the, about the truthfulness about what I'm about to say. The IRS under the Obama administration, was used as a political tool to undermine the effectiveness of, of conservative 501c3 nonprofits in, in the elections that Obama was involved in. And, and you know, what happened to that? Who was, who, who was held accountable? Well, no one. And every time that happens, average Americans get up every day and think, what would happen to me if I got involved in something like this? I mean, what if, if I was guilty of what Hunter Biden was guilty of, would I get a sweetheart deal? Of course not. Would, would, would I have a, a prosecutor who investigates me long enough for the statute of limitations to kick in before charges are filed so that I can escape prosecution? Of course that wouldn't happen. It would not happen to everyday Americans. And if that's the case, then we begin to lose confidence in the justice system because the justice system has become corrupt. And that's where we are. It's a bad place for us to be as a country. Now, uh, there's going to be a lot more about this, of course, as we continue on. I just I wanted to spend a good portion of the program today talking about the fact, the fact that Hunter Biden has been charged with a, with a gun violation it's, it's, it's almost an insult. Now, I, I know that sounds crazy because people were mad that he was getting a sweetheart deal and not going to be charged with anything. But for him, for all of the evidence that has been presented to be out there of his business dealings, the tax issues, all of that, and what do we get back to? We get back to hearing that he's going to be charged with a gun crime, putting, putting down lying on a federal form to obtain a firearm, and that he and and the fact that he was using um, uh, cocaine, which is an illegal substance, and he might get ten years. Uh, I don't think he's going to spend a day in jail. I still don't think. I think if this case is litigated, and he's found guilty, which I if it goes to trial and people look at the evidence, I think he'll be found guilty. But a first-time offender, the son of the vice president of the United States, does anybody think he's going to get significant jail time if he gets any? Again, this goes back to a lack of confidence because we see a pattern over and over in the Justice Department that treats people differently because of, the, of politics and because of their position in the country. And that's the thing that our founders wanted to guard against the most. They wanted the Justice Department. They wanted the judicial system, the, the, the judiciary branch of the federal government, the law enforcement portion of our government had to be separate from the legislature and the executive branch. And when you start having the Justice Department up under the executive branch and the executive branch putting pressure on the Justice Department for its decisions, um, when that becomes obvious, People begin to use, they lose trust. They lose heart. Um, let's talk about another story. Federal jury in Washington, D.C. found Enrique Tario guilty of seditious conspiracy back in May, connected with January 6th. He's one of the Proud Boys. In fact, he was considered to be the leader of the Proud Boys leading up to January 6th in the Capitol riots. He was sentenced by Judge Timothy Kelly to 22 years in jail. 
Now, in, in case, just for those who care, Timothy Kelly was appointed by President Trump. Uh, he could have received a maximum of 33 years. He got 22. And before sentencing, Tario told the judge that he was not a political zealot, and he asked for mercy. Tario wasn't in D.C. on the day of the Capitol riots. He was arrested for defacing a Black Lives Matter banner a few days before the Capitol rally, and he'd been ordered by a judge not to be in D.C. Now, all of this information that I'm sharing with you has come from Daily Wire and from the Washington Post. So just so you know what my sources are. He was convicted for private and public messages that he sent and posted prior to January 6th. Tario sent messages such as, do what must be done and don't um, effing leave. Sorry, I'm, I'm having to clean this up as best I can. He was convicted of being the leader of 200 of the Proud Boys who were recruited to storm government buildings as part of a scheme known as 1776 Returns. And the trial for the five members of the Proud Boys this spring featured video captured by participants and journalists uh, and police body cameras, surveillance cameras in the area, and even one of the five defendants recording the Proud Boys' assault on the Capitol. The footage began with their initial group of 200 marching away from Trump's rally on the Ellipse at 10 o'clock, long before Trump began speaking, followed by confrontations with police at several barricades, and finally, their entry into the Capitol at 2.11 p.m. after a new member, uh, Pizzola, uh, used a stolen police riot shield to smash a window on the Capitol's West Terrace. Now, that's all according to the Washington Post. Uh, his Proud Boy co-defendants were also sentenced to long prison terms. Ethan Nordine received 18 years. Joe Biggs received 17 years. Zachary, Zachary Realm was sentenced to 15 years. All were found guilty of seditious conspiracy, and that's been controversial because it's a seldom-used Civil War-era charge that was established for one purpose, to prosecute Confederate soldiers who may have chosen to continue fighting after the war. And it's been used about a dozen times in relation to January 6th. It's been used successfully by the Justice Department. These juries are finding these defendants guilty. And Judge Kelly agreed that all four men were hit with the, the prosecution wanted them to be hit with terrorism sentencing enhancements. And Judge Kelly agreed. Uh, so none of the defendants were charged with assault, with all the charges being related to planning and execution of the riot. And just in case you're curious, uh, 382 people are still awaiting trial on J6 charges. Quinnipiac polling that was done recently says about 50% of the people are ready to move on from January 6th. Uh, it, there was a Rasmussen poll that came, a Rasmussen poll, excuse me, that came out uh, shortly after January 6th that said basically 50% of the country believed that a lot of the charges were political and overblown. And now we've got 50% of the country here ready to move on. And I mean, after the January 6th committee, which was a sham, uh, put on a show for the American people, I think most Americans could see through that. And they began to say, you know, wh wh where's all of the counter evidence? The, J the January 6th committee did nothing, uh, congressional committee did nothing more than present one side of the story. They took a narrative, they got a TV producer and they produced a show for the American people. And the American people are smart enough to know that that's exactly what happened. And they've, they've, they've had enough of all of this January 6th stuff that they believe um, now, a lot of people believe, was overblown. Now, look, let me be clear about where I, where I stand about this. I think people who broke the law on January 6th should be prosecuted and their sentences should be reflective of the laws that they broke. And my problem with what's going on is the lack of interest, the lack of intense investigation that took place during the Black Lives Matter riots when you had people attempting to burn down buildings. One successfully burned down a building, killed a man, and there, there were no consequences, or at least very little, very few consequences. Matt Walsh has a good piece about this at Daily Wire. I think it was out there today. Let me see if I can 
pull it up. He's talking about Tario, but he goes back and talks about the the people who have been guilty of some of the same things that these January 6th defendants are are guilty of, but they didn't receive any scrutiny. He mentions mentions the Kavanaugh hearings, which if you remember, I mean, the the Supreme Court was basically invaded. I mean, the the, the su- Supreme Court buildings, there's there's video of what was going on outside the Supreme Court and outside um, the congressional hearing room when Kavanaugh was being questioned by the Senate judiciary about whether, you know, to determine whether he should be on the Supreme Court or not. I mean, and, and what happened to those people? What happened to the ones that had to be dragged out of the of, of the hearing room? We, we don't ever hear that this is the same it, that was a legitimate government proceeding that was taking place, and there were people doing their best to storm the building to make it not happen. So why have they not been charged? That, and, and this is not whataboutism, okay? This, we're, whataboutism, we, we may engage in when we're just talking about purely political topics, but we're talking about justice here. We're talking about something that's very important for the American people to maintain a justice system that looks equally at the law for everybody concerned. Matt Walsh goes on to talk about some of the the other people that were uh, not charged or charged with lesser crimes in the Black Lives Matter riots. Consider, this is from Walsh, Consider the case of BLM arsonist back in 2020 who lit a pawn shop on fire in the name of civil rights. Three days after after George Floyd died, Montez T. Lee decided to commit an act of arson that killed Oscar Lee Stewart. Stewart's body wasn't found in the rubble for nearly two months. What Montez what was Montez Lee's sentence? He got less than 10 years in prison. That's less than half the sentence that Enrico Tario will face for sending some text messages that were bad. Now, he I don't want to undermine what Tario did. He was the leader of the Proud Boys. And he called them to come. He helped recruit the 200 that came to Washington that ended up being the instigators. The, they're the ones that really started the riot portion of this. And so I, I don't want to... Um, to make it sound like I'm, I'm minimizing what he did. I'm just saying here is a situation where a rioter, a protester, burned a building down, killed somebody, and got less than 10 years. Tario wasn't even in D.C. when when this these events happened. Now, no question he helped plan them. No question he recruited people. But he he wasn't there. Here's a guy who was not only there when riots were taking place, he burned a building down and killed somebody, and he got less than 10 years in prison. Um, then, you know, we have we have other situations where the same kind of thing has happened with Black Lives Matter. You, you, where, where are the sentences for those, for those people? Um, for example, let me give you another one. Uh, unlike Kevin Weir, um, now Kevin Weir was in Portland. He was also part of the Black Lives Matter riots. Uh, he was in Portland. And he took a flaming piece of wood and put it up against a federal building. And and pretty much his his desire, his goal was to burn down a government building. And he was one of the handful of militants who were arrested after the attack on the federal courthouse. He pled guilty. So what happened to him? What about assaulting a federal courthouse in Portland? Well, the DOJ made a point to issue a press release about the many years in jail that he would get as a domestic terrorist. Specifically, the DOJ's press release stated that Weir's intentional destruction of federal courthouses was punishable by up to 10 years in prison. So what what happened to that case? Well, there was never a follow-up press release after Weir was actually sentenced. They sent the message that this arsonist would serve some hard time, but they failed to inform the public about Weir's actual sentence. Why is that? 
Well, it's not hard to answer that question. As it happens, Weir ultimately received a sentence that was nowhere near the 10-year term that the Biden DOJ suggested. Instead, on the recommendation of federal prosecutors, he received a sentence of two years probation. Two years probation in the Black Lives Matter protest that turned into a riot, and he attempted to burn down a federal courthouse in Portland. And he's out walking around. And his probation, of course, has already expired. Uh, He never served a day in prison. He did have to pay a $200 fine. So there was the, I guess that's that's that. That's the big burden. Um, Again, my thanks to Matt Walsh for doing the research on that. So this this is this let me circle back around and let's put a bow on this. I'm talking about this in the context of biblical justice, the concept that God expects for Christians but for society as a whole to treat people with dignity and respect because we're created in the image of God and we go before and when we go before a judge the the judge has to be impartial. The prosecutor has to be bringing charges based on the evidence, and the prosecutor, even though he has prosecutorial discretion, that is, the ability to decide what charges to file, cannot have his thumb on the scale when it comes to who to charge and not to charge because of political considerations or trying to protect the powerful at the expense of the weak. These are things that God hates. And these are things that a constitutional republic will not survive in the long run if we can't get our justice system back to true justice, treating everybody the same. And that should be the goal of believers. Look, I'm, I'm not interested in using all these cases as a political club to beat up the opposition. I'm interested in using all these cases to convince the American people as a whole, regardless of what tribe you belong to, we've got a serious problem in this country with our justice system, and we have to get it fixed to protect us all. All right, um, Judge uh, Joe Kennedy, uh, this is some really interesting stuff going on with him. Uh, Coach Kennedy has resigned after the first football game back following his court win, and lawyers for Kennedy are citing retaliation against him as a reason. Now, if that's true, uh, those the school district is going to be in, in court uh, because I have no doubt that an action will be filed by Kennedy's attorneys. This is according to Daily Wire. After a Supreme Court victory and being reinstated to his football coaching position, Joe Kennedy has submitted a letter of resignation to the Bremerton School District in Washington State. We've come to learn of serious allegations of retaliation against Coach Kennedy by the Bremerton School District. That's a quote from Hiram Sasser, Executive General Counsel at First Liberty Institute. He released a statement Wednesday afternoon about this. They've done everything they can to make him feel unwelcome, Sasser said, adding that First Liberty Institute, the legal organization that represented Kennedy throughout his legal battle, is going to investigate the situation to determine whether further legal action is necessary. The Bremerton School District confirmed Kennedy's resignation on its website, stating that the district has received Mr. Kennedy's resignation and is pending board approval at tomorrow night's regularly scheduled meeting. In his resignation letter, Kennedy called it apparent that his reinstatement ordered by the Supreme Court will not be fully followed after a series of actions meant to diminish my role and single me out in what I can only believe is retaliation to the school district. Now, this story, when this story first broke yesterday, do you know what the emphasis was? It was that Joe Kennedy was going to walk away to take care of an ailing family member, a sick family member, and that he was going to become an advocate for First Amendment rights, for religious liberty. And that was going to be his his focus for the rest of his life. That's why he was stepping away from football. Initially, this this portion of his resignation that talks about the fact of how he's being mistreated, it was completely buried in the story. I mean, you would have to you'd have to you'd have had to have a microscope to find the the part of the story that said that oh yeah, 
he was also being mistreated. He was being singled out because the school district didn't particularly like that they lost this case. Um, so, again, justice. I mean, what, what would justice be here in this case? I think it was justice that Joe Kennedy had his uh, First Amendment religious liberty protected by the United States Supreme Court, and it's going. Th this is something that they don't need to let go, because if it's true, now these are allegations at this point, but if it's true that Bremerton High School uh, was involved in what was obvious, an obvious attempt to drive Joe Kennedy away or to make it difficult for him to stay in his job. If he was ostracized, then the school district needs to be held accountable for that. All right. Um, final story today. I told you we'd talk about this um, poll that came out from the Washington Post. It's been out for a few days now, um, and it's basically uh, a poll that has discovered problems with the Democrat candidate, Joe Biden, because of his age and questions about President Trump's character. Now, let me let me summarize the poll here for you. And and let me in, in terms of the 2024 presidential election because right now all appearances say that um, former President Trump's going to be the Republican candidate and Joe Biden of course will be the Democrat candidate, although I'm still predicting that before the end of the year or at the latest around the first of the year uh, Biden's going to pull out of the presidential race. I just don't see how he can do it. I don't see how the Democrat Party, I think they're giving him leeway at the moment to try to come to this decision on his own, but I think eventually he's going to be pressured to step aside because of health considerations, because these, these gaffes, mental and physical, keep happening. This is not something that happens and then goes away. It, it happens now almost every time he steps out in public. And I just don't see how the Democrat Party can say this is going to be our candidate for president in 2024. But if everything remains the same, if everything stays like it is now, it's going to be Trump, Biden. Possibility that Trump's been convicted of some crime by then, by the time we go to the polls in November, and he could be sentenced to jail and still be elected president of the United States. This attempt, and we'll get into the attempt to keep him off the ballot on this program. Um, I've been reading some of the background legal theory that how people are trying to, I think it's the 14th Amendment, they're trying to use to say that President Trump was engaged in uh, insurrection against the government. First of all, he's not even been charged with that. And he, when, when he was, when, when those charges were leveled in an impeachment trial, he was acquitted. So there's, there's no way that they're going to be able to legally keep Trump off the ballot. I don't think those initiatives are going to bear fruit. But what they can do is cause a campaign that's already cash-strapped because of all the legal fees that, the, that President Trump is facing. It, it can be another way of draining money away from the campaign, distracting the campaign, so that it's difficult for Trump to be out on the campaign trail. I mean, he does have to win a larger voter block than just the Republican base if he's going to be president. There's no question. And even if these lawsuits are unsuccessful, they have to be fought. Lawyers have to be paid. And this is, uh, I mean, it's just getting to be a, a big mess. Um, all right, here's some of the results of the poll. Do you approve or disapprove of the job Joe Biden is doing on each of the following? The economy about 58% disapprove, only 36% approve. Inflation and rising cost. This is, this is a killer for Biden. 60, even though he's running around the country talking about Bidenomics, I think it would be better if he just stopped talking for him because the American people are not buying his idea that we're really doing well. What an insult it is to everyday average Americans who go to the grocery store, who go to the gas station, who are trying to live under higher prices. I mean, yes, the, the rate of inflation may be down, but the prices are still up. And nobody really cares about the rate of inflation 
if we're all shelling out all this extra money every time we want to go out or every time we go to the store, every time we uh, get necessities. I mean, this is the cost of living is has is staying very high. That's what people are concerned about. And that's that's why in this poll, when they ask, how's Joe Biden doing on inflation and rising cost? 64% say not good. They disapprove of what he's doing. Only 34% approve. Uh, securing the border, here's it's a tie. 64% say that Biden is doing a terrible job. This is Wall Street Journal poll. This is not Rasmussen or uh, Trafalgar, even though I, I believe those polling companies are absolutely solid. The, 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 the knock against them always is, well, they're coming from the right. I don't think the Wall Street Journal is coming too far. From, yeah, it's supposed to be kind of of the big three, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. They're supposed to be kind of the kind of the conservative ones. But if you look at their content, they've the Wall Street Journal has moved more to the left in the last five to ten years. So um, improving infrastructure. Uh, now Biden gets this. This is one place that he's not underwater. About 46% of the people approve of his attempt to improve infrastructure as opposed to 42% who don't approve. So it's, he's almost even. Dealing with China, um, it's, it's, a, it's lopsided again. 58% disapprove, about 33% approve. Creating jobs, it's 50-50. You got 45% say, nope not doing a good job, 45% say, yeah, he's doing a good job. Now, the four, 45% that say he's doing a good job are just looking at the jobless rate and the numbers of jobs created that, that is being released every month. They're not, they're not looking at the actual, actual conditions on the ground. The 45% who say that they don't approve of the way President Biden has done this understand that most of the 13 million jobs that he touts that have been created since he became president are jobs that were coming back after the opening, after the closing of the pandemic, and that those jobs would have come back anyway. The president, President Biden can't really take credit for those, although, of course, he's going to. The war in Ukraine, the president's upside down on that. 52% of Americans say they disapprove the way the president's handled it. Only 42% say that they approve. Um, Let's see. The share who say each phrase describes the candidate well. Okay, this is interesting, and this this is all we'll do with this. Um, the, the, these are phrases that people were asked, does this phrase describe the candidate well? The first one, is too old to run for president? 74% in this poll say that Joe Biden is too old to run for president. Now, Donald Trump has got his problems with this too, but it's only 40, uh, 48% say that Trump is too old. Trump's 77, 78, something like that. Um, yeah, but, and, and Biden's 80 to 81. But the, the, the differences are obvious in terms of mental acuity, uh, physical ability, strength, I mean, the whole thing. Um, the next one. Uh, do you do you agree? How do you feel about this statement? The the candidate is mentally up for the job. Only forty for President for Donald Trump. Forty eight percent say he's mentally up for the job. For President Biden, thirty six percent. So Trump holds an edge there as well as in the age category. Cares about people like you. Now Trump is at forty two percent. Biden is at about 41%. There's about a 1% difference. Is honest. Uh, Biden leads Trump in that category. 40, let's see, it's about, I'm looking at graphs and they don't have the numbers, so I'm having to estimate looking at where the line crosses. But uh, about 40, I'd say 47% say that they believe Joe Biden is honest compared to about 38% that say Donald Trump is honest. Has a vision for the future. Trump leads in that category, 52% to 42%. Has a strong record of accomplishments as president. This is something that Trump is pretty far out ahead, a 10-point difference in front of Joe Biden. 50% say that Trump did a great job as president, accomplished a lot. 
Only about 40% say that about Biden and is a likable person. Now, on likability, Joe Biden's at 48%. Donald Trump's at about 31%. So what does that mean? Well, polls this far out, take them with a grain of salt. They don't mean a whole lot. But they do mean that if this, in my opinion, if this election comes down to character, if it comes down to Joe Biden as a person versus Donald Trump as a person, and, and I, I get all the corruption charges. We just went through all of that and demonstrated that Vice President Biden, I think it, we can say with some confidence, has been involved with Hunter Biden's. He hadn't been proven in court. they not even been charged. But the evidence suggests that, that the, the Biden family has been receiving payments from Joe Biden, but, uh, rather from Hunter Biden, because of Joe Biden being in, elected to office for years. That's how they've made their money. So, so you can look at that and say Joe Biden is the corrupt candidate here, but Donald Trump is the one with multiple indictments and facing trial during an election year. A lot of people believe that all of that is a sham, but how many of them are going to go out and vote for Trump? So if this comes down to what Trump accomplished, if the focus is on the effectiveness of the candidate as president, I think Trump can win this race. If it comes down to personality and likability, we're going to be back with Biden, if Biden's actually the candidate. All right, that's all the time we've got, um, and we'll be back tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed the program today. Once again, you can find the podcast in about 30 minutes. It'll be posted at Spotify. You can find it also at, uh, where else? You can find it at Apple Podcast and just about anywhere else that you would go to look for a podcast. It'll be listed there. Thanks for listening today. Um, please talk to your friends about the show if you enjoy it and help me promote it. Thank you for helping me grow the show as it is growing right now. And I hope you have a blessed day. I'll see you in the morning at 730.